If you would, open your Bibles to the book of Ruth. It's pretty early on in the Old Testament. Here at Sojourn, we never want you to wonder uh, this question. Do I need my Bible today? Yes. Like We go to the Word of God because it is what instructs us. It is the light into our feet, a lamp into our path. It is the, the Word that is inerrant and it's inspired. It's the Word that we stand upon as the authority as we stand up here to teach and preach. We want you to know that, that while Sojourn exists under my breath and the, the pastors as well, like you will need your Bibles here because this is our instruction. This is where we get to know God. And so I'd encourage you, if you have a Bible, to turn to the book of Ruth. We'll be in chapter 1 today. If you don't, you can grab one over there and you can feel free to take it home or follow along with us on your phone or on the screen as well. So Ruth... Chapter 1 is where we'll be this morning. And let's just go to the, to the Lord in prayer as we begin and open up His Word. Father, we, we pray that You would bless the, the hearing and teaching of Your Word this morning. That You would help us to have a, a proper posture before You as human beings. That we would be humble before You, ready to receive from You as the One who is the Great One, whose name is above all other names, who is worthy and deserving of all of our praise. Help us to put effort into listening to You now and understanding Your Word. But also, God, help us to not stop there, but put the effort into applying it and living it out daily in our lives. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your instruction. Use it in our lives. May it not return void in our hard, sinful hearts. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. How did you get here this morning? It's kind of a simple question for for a lot of us, right? Got in the car, got here. Right? Drove here, or if you rode, you just got in the car and you, you, you rode here. Or if you walked here, you just I, I just walked over. I could tell you the steps. This is how I, I got here. And so, in some ways, when I say, how did you get here this morning? It's a really, really simple question. But in a lot of other ways, it's a very, very complex question. Because there weren't just, you got into the car and you got here, wasn't the whole story. There's, there's a lot more story than that. It's a very complex question. Question, and I like how one author says it. Now this is somewhat crude, but you'll, you'll see the point that he's making. He says this, rumor has it, it's not just rumor, this is scientific information, that most normal men spend at least 8 million forward swimming sperm looking for an egg every sexual act. Don't even bother adding in egg variation or the total number of sperm that may have had a fighting chance during your mother's days of fertility when you were conceived. Or the possibility that she might have taken her friend's advice and shunned your father. No, keep it simple and wildly conservative, which I think he's right there, wildly conservative. Your chances of being here were about one out of eight million. That's wildly conservative comparing with also maybe your grandparents and both sets of grandparents and then your parents and then on down. I mean, the chances of us being here is actually a really complex question when you come down to it. It's not just I got in the car and I got here. There's a lot more behind it than that. There's a lot bigger picture to the story than just you got into the car and you got here. In fact, it sounds like you got here. You're kind of a lottery winner to be here this morning. So I hope you feel that way. The author actually goes on to say that. Welcome, you're a lottery winner. You had one in a... Eight million chance of being here. The question is, is simple, but it's also complex in, in, if we look at every detail. And, it, and it's good to know that in those details, that there's one who's behind it. That there's one who's designing it. That there's one who cares about those details. So much so that they work themselves out to a simple thing that you just got in the car and drove here today. Because of all those little details that were worked out for you. And I think you see a great picture of this as well in 
in Ruth and Naomi's life. You see, the question of Naomi, how did, how did you get here, Naomi? What are you doing in Moab and what are you going to do from there? It's, it's kind of a simple question. Well, we left Bethlehem, we walked over to Moab and we decided to live there. But it's also very complex. Because as we saw, there was a famine in the land. There was other things going on. How were all those things happening? What was, what was behind the scenes there? How did all those little minute details that we pass over and don't even think about? How did they work about to get Naomi where she was in Moab? And where is she going to go from here? So it's a simple question, but also very complex in Naomi's life. And so we pick up the story of this simple yet very complex story of Naomi's life in verse 6 of chapter 1. Where we see that she has lost her husband... She has lost her two sons and she is left with two daughters-in-law. As verse 5 tells us, both Malon and Kilion died, so the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So where is Naomi going from here? What's going to happen from here? And it says in verse 6, that then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited His people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Now if you remember, there was a famine in Judah. There was a famine in all of Israel, and famine was tied to these covenant curses from God. That is to say that God said, here's the covenant. I will be your God, you will be my people. You need to walk in obedience to me. And if you walk in disobedience, there are, here are some things in place where you can return, where you can fix these problems of your own sin. But if you continue to walk in rebellion and disobedience, here's what's going to happen to you, here's what's going to happen to the land. And one of those curses was a curse of famine. The solution for that for the Israelites wasn't we need to have better uh, soil preservation. wasn't we need better farming techniques. It was repentance before the Lord, humbling themselves before God and saying, we have disobeyed you, would you please restore us and restore this land. God had given the Israelites a way out of their problem. That is, He was showing grace to them. They didn't earn or deserve a way out from their sin and rebellion against the one true living God, but in His graciousness, God had given it to them. So here when we read that God has visited His people and that there's food in Israel, we don't know exactly what's going on here. We don't know if the people of Israel were very repentant. Or if they were just kind of temporarily repentant, which we see all the time in Judges, that they, if something bad happens, they're like, God help us, and then they turn right back to their gods again. But whatever was going on in Israel, we can tell you that this news that God had visited His people is news of grace. God is being gracious that He would give them food in their land. And it says that He had visited His people. Now this is a word that's used to describe how God works in the midst of His people over and over and over again. And so God visited His people in Egypt. And when it means He visited them, He brought signs and wonders to obliterate a whole army of the Egyptians to bring His people, the Israelites, out from Egypt. He visited those Israelites. And here, He visits His people again. And what this visiting is... It's not just a coming over and having a nice chat. This visiting is an amazing act, an amazing display of God's grace in their lives. And so this is good news. This is God's good news of of inbreaking grace into the midst of famine and sin and rebellion. And what it does here is it breaks into Naomi's life. In the midst of her darkness, after she's lost her husband, after she loses two sons, this news hits Naomi's ears in the fields of Moab. Now if you, starting in Tulsa, go up I-44 all the way to Springfield, there you'll see about a million signs for fantastic caverns. They are really convinced that those signs are going to bring in business. 
We went to fantastic caverns. And they, they and most caves do this. You, you go to the inner part of the cave and they will just tell you to turn everything off, turn off all the lights so you can be in just utter darkness where you, do, you can't see the hand in front of your face. It's, it's amazing to think about. It's kind of scary if they left it like that for very long. But then what they did was that they, they took an old tin can and they had a candle in it and they said, we just want to show you, here's what it's like when, when the first people came to this place. Here's what they had. So they just had a tin can with a hole in it and a tiny little candle in there and they lit it up. And you're like, as soon as you open your eyes and you see this light, you're like shielding your eyes from this one tiny candle in a tin can. Because you've seen utter darkness where you couldn't even see your hand in front of your face. And so even in the midst of this complete darkness... A tiny little light can have a huge impact, can light up a ton more than you would ever even have noticed before. And in subtle ways, the grace of God breaks into the darkness like a dim light in the midst of a completely dark cave. Like that lantern in a cavern, God's grace is, is breaking into the darkness in Naomi's life here. News is starting to be whispered. God has visited His people and it hits her ears in the land of Moab. This is kind of like the news in, in the Chronicles of Narnia series where they're, they're always winter but never Christmas. This is the news that, the, that gets the animals and the, the children kind of excited. Aslan's on the move. It's kind of whispered around in the midst of all of this brokenness, all of this winter, all of the white witches rule. It's whispered in there. Aslan's on the move. And here it is again. God has visited His people. And this good news reaches Naomi after all of the bad news she had received for 10 years of bad Bad news in her life. This good news hits her where she's at. Today, like if you are in darkness, if you feel like, and Naomi's a character that I can really identify with because I've had a broken life, then I want you to hear good news. Because God has visited His people. It is so much clearer to us today than in the fields of Moab where here that God visited His people in a distant place where you'd have to walk back to to see and God has visited His people and He's visited Him in Himself. He, he's called Jesus. He is God in flesh and He came to reveal perfectly the Father. He has visited us so that we could know God, so that we could see Him and touch Him. He had DNA. He had hair. He had skin. This is God in the flesh. His name was Jesus. And He was a display before us of an amazing, gracious God who would come and live a life that we could not live. So that we might not die the death that we deserve to die. That's a display of grace. He has visited His people. So if you've, if you've been in the darkness, or if you're in the darkness, we want you to take heart because God's at work. Aslan's still on the move. He's not done here. He's going to set things right. And so in our darkness, we can remember that God is so gracious, that He's still at work providentially. And this is what we see over and over again in the book of Ruth. There's, there's some darkness, there's some mystery. And somehow God keeps working behind the scenes. And this is a theme all through this book. And so after hearing this good news, these three women, they set out. But somewhere along the journey they stop. If you pick up the story in verse 8. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. They are lamenting together. But Naomi is giving them advice. And what Naomi is doing here is just being very practical. Like, listen, return to your families. You don't belong in Israel. Like, 
That's not your your people are here. Your your gods are here. Stay here. Find a husband. This is where your future is. So what Naomi is doing is is essentially freeing them from any responsibility for her. If they felt tied to her whatsoever, Naomi's saying, Don't don't feel tied. You don't you're no responsibility here. Go go back to your people. This is the the reasonable things to do. But these daughters in law they they insist in verse ten. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go, go your way. I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. The Ruth is, is painting before them. Like, here's a picture of impossibility for you. I can't get married right now. No one's going to marry. I'm too old for that. I can't have children if I were to get married. And even if that happened, it, it, you wouldn't wait for them to become men. I can't do anything. I can't supply you need. I can't help you carry this family on. There's nothing I can do here. This is just impossibility after impossibility. I can't provide for you. I can't help you. So, so you need to move on. It's a pretty compelling case that she makes for them. She's discouraging them from going on with her. And in a very moving scene, the party finally splits up. In verse 14, Then they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So we have this, this party and you see this moving scene where there's just a lot of weeping. Three ladies and a lot of weeping. Guys are like, are we done crying yet? Like, Can we go on with the story? This is not a chick flick. We're here reading the scripture. There's a lot of crying from these women. A lot of weeping. A lot of lamenting. A lot of mourning. It would probably have been loud. And we can imagine, if you can just think about this, this bond between these two daughters-in-law and this mother after death. The death of her husband, which they are brought into as they married her sons. After barrenness, ten years, they're wanting to have children. Ten years with her sons, nothing. Month after month, disappointment after disappointment, they are barren. And then, on top of that, both of these sons die. You can imagine what that will do and how that will bring people together. Tragedy after tragedy. They, they know each other on a deep level. There's something deep and important going on here when these daughters are lamenting and mourning and wailing. But Orpah sees the reasoning of Naomi's argument. She, she gets it. Like, it's going to be painful. We've done a lot. We, we have this unique bond, but she still leaves. Now this is the sensible thing to do. This is the reasonable thing to do. This is the expected course. And actually the, the, the author doesn't give any sort of comment whatsoever. Negatively on Orpah. She, just, she goes back and the author seems to be fine with that. Seems to be the reasonable thing to do. But once again, God is providentially and mysteriously at work in this story. Because the unexpected, the unreasonable, and the extraordinary happens. Orpah kisses her mother-in-law and, and leaves. And Ruth clung to her. She clung to her. This is a display of extreme loyalty from a daughter-in-law to a mother-in-law. Ruth clings to her. Now, Orpah, Orpah we get. We understand her move to, to go back. This is all you've known. This is your land. You have your family here. You have more possibilities here. You have a future here. But this is a really strange move from Ruth. It, a really strange... What kind of a weirdo would stay with her mother-in-law over her other family, right? Maybe you guys are really, really excited about your mother-in-laws and that just seems like this is the normal move for us, right? We cling to our mothers and mother-in-laws. But... This seems like a strange move. 
Your family's here. This is where you're from. These are your roots. You need to go back there. That's what makes sense. That's what's reasonable. And Ruth does some strange thing. She clings to Naomi. Now why would she do this? If we read on, verse 15 says, And she said, Naomi's saying now, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Go, go after her. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. She, she clings to Naomi. And this clinging to Naomi is a display of her switching, her transfer in membership from being a Moabite to being an Israelite, from being part of her family, family to being fully included in part of Naomi's family. She is switching her membership. She is transferring her people. She is switching from the gods of Moab to the God of Israel. Now this is a significant move from Ruth. She likely, my guess is that she likely doesn't have all the implications of what this move means. Maybe she has no idea. Maybe she has no idea what it means to live under the law and in the promised land. Maybe she does. Maybe she does have a concept of what's going on here. But either way, what is going on here is that this is a significant decision that ought to catch our attention. Not only because a daughter-in-law and a mother-in-law are getting along so well, so much that they cling to each other with this extreme loyalty. But what, is, what does Ruth do here? She cuts off all other ties. She completely switches allegiance. She's switching teams. And it goes beyond just Naomi. Did you hear her words here? She didn't just say, where you live, I will live. But she said, where you die. So when you're dead, I'm going to be buried there too. So even after you're dead, it's not just Naomi that she's staying with and clinging to. She said, where you're buried, I'm going to be buried too. I'm not just going to go back to Moab when you're dead and, and I feel like I've, I've paid my due to you and my responsibility to you as a mother-in-law. No, where you die, I'm going to die. And so whatever her motivation is, whatever her understanding of what it means to be part of the people of God and to follow Yahweh, Ruth is all in with Naomi here. She is all in with Israel and she says, I'm all in with the God of Israel. Now there is no doubt that what what Ruth is doing here is required of all believers. If you look in the book of of Luke, not Ruth, the book of Luke shares this and tells this to us so plainly. In Luke chapter 9, verse 57 says this, it's the cost of following Jesus. As they were going along the road, someone said to Him, I will follow you wherever you go. Speaking of Jesus. And Jesus turns around and says to him, this is something we ought to say to people who, who want to become believers sometimes. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. To another He said, follow Me. But He said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. He goes on in Luke chapter 14. Starting in verse 26, he says this. He says, If anyone comes to me... And does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. 
You are cutting off all other things. Ruth, she may not have known all the implications of this move when she says that she's going to cling to Naomi. She may not know much about Yahweh. She may not know what it means to live under the law. She may not know what it means to be a widow with the people of Israel. But she's all in. And what she is is this great picture of what it means to truly turn to God. You are severing all other ties. Turning to God fully means being a part not only of of God, but also His people, which is required as well. It means switching allegiances completely and totally. It means saying that God is first in your life and that no other thing or person even compares to your love for God. Nothing threatens that love for God. And that's what's going on here. As Luke told us, that you ought to hate mother and wife. Are we called to hate people? No, the, the, the problem isn't that we love our families too much. The problem is that we love God too little. And this is what he's saying. If you turn to me, you ought to love me supremely. You can't love your family too much. That's not the problem. But you can love God much too little. And if you put God in His rightful place, the love compared with your family is going to look much, much different. You are switching allegiances completely. You're saying, I'm all in with God. Because there is no other form of Christianity. You're either all in or you're not in at all. And so there ought to be a lot more of these kind of questions like, hey, the dead need to bury their own dead. You're either in or you're out. You're following Christ wholeheartedly and fully. Loving Him supremely. Or you're not following Him at all. There's no other option here. And what Ruth is doing is giving us this beautiful picture of what that looks like. Put yourself in her shoes. She is leaving everything familiar. She is cutting off ties with her family so that she can be a part of a different one. This is a great foreshadowing of of what it means to walk with Christ and to turn to Him. And I like what one author said when when he comments on this. He said, one may understand Orpah. And we should understand her. But one must emulate Ruth. Ruth is the example set up for us. This is what it looks like to turn from your lifestyle and your ways to a living God. Ruth probably knew it was going to cost her. Now we don't know all of her understanding, but she knew that they were rival nations. That surely the the welcome party wasn't going to be poured out for people who are from Moab. She knew she was a widow, which automatically puts her at a lower place in society's eyes, right? You're in a different setting. You know no one. You have no friends. You have no connections there other than Naomi. You have few legal rights. There might be prejudice against you. People might be racist against you as a Moabite. All these things. But what she does is foreshadowing what it means to follow Christ. We don't know how much she knew about all these things. But she is a great picture of what it means to cut off ties. And to turn to the living God. She is all in. And in our day of consumerism and Commitment averse drifting. In our day of chasing fads and hypes and thing after thing after thing, the newest, the biggest, the better, and on and on, Naomi is this great picture, or Ruth is this great picture of what it means to be all in, cutting off all things to follow another. And the reality is, is that we have a much clearer picture than Ruth ever got as she clung to Naomi. She clings to Naomi and abandons Moab. And we have a much better picture of what we are following and turning from. You see, we know that following Jesus means losing our life. Cutting off all ties. But we also know it means gaining it. We know that following Jesus is going to cost us friends, jobs, family members, maybe even our head. But we also know that great is our reward in heaven. Amen. We know... 
Things that Ruth had no idea of likely. And yet Ruth didn't know how things were going to turn out and she clings. But we know how things are going to turn out. We know that there is an eternity. We know that our time here is short and like a vapor and a mist. We're working with much better knowledge than what Ruth had. So that we should be able to say, like Peter said in John 6, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We know those things. So when we turn to follow Christ, we're saying, we we not only see that this is an option, this is the only option. There is no other option. Jesus is the one who has eternal life. If we go from here, where else will we go? So Ruth shows some amazing loyalty to Naomi here. But did you think about, how, how has Ruth heard about this God of Naomi? Like, how did she hear about Naomi's God? And what does that look like? Because in verse 17, what she does is she uses this name, May the Lord, and that, that name that she uses, that word for Lord is Yahweh. She's using the specific name of Israel's God, Yahweh. How has she heard about that? Now, likely, you know, she, she heard about it from her family. Naomi, Elimelech. Malon and Kilion, they were the ones who, who testified to her of this one true living God, this one that they call Yahweh. But when you look in the book of Ruth, regardless of where you stand on, on how faithful or faithless that family was, they're not this, this picture of faith, are they? Elimelech, is he this picture of bravery and faith when he abandons the land instead of repenting with his people? No, he's, he's not a portrait of faith. Naomi is left with her sons after her husband dies, possibly in connection to God's outpouring providence of saying, this is the wrong move. She's left with these sons, and and Naomi kind of is the one who, these are her sons, so he lets them intermarry to, to women who have other gods. It's not a portrait of bold and courageous faith that we would hold up and say, here's the hero of the faith, Elimelech, Malon, Kilion, and Naomi. What, what heroes of the faith? How they stood in the midst of sin and rebellion and stayed faithful to their God. We wouldn't say any of those things. Because we have signs that would point us in the other direction. But we don't know whether they, are they faithful at all, are they just a little bit, or are they these great heroes? We'd say, man, they're not these great heroes. But whatever happens, we know that Ruth hears about Yahweh. And she truly and fully devotes herself to Israel and to Israel's God. And so think of this. Like, isn't it encouraging to think about that God used this, this family, Elimelech, Malon, Kilion, and Naomi. This family from Israel, kind of an average family just fleeing the land trying to find some food. God used that family to bring, bring in Ruth. Not a picture of faith, and yet Ruth still ties herself to their God and says, I'm following this God, and where you die, Naomi, I'm going to die there too. Your God, He's going to be my God. God can use anything. It's almost laughable how awesome God is, and that He can use the tiniest little things to bring in redemption, to, to bring people to Himself. God can use Naomi, He can use this tiny church in the middle of Eden to bring about some significant impact in the world. And Naomi and Ruth are just a picture of that, and... and and you can see as we go on in the story, this bringing in of Ruth is, is much more than just the bringing in of Ruth. God can use the, 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 the weak faith of, of Naomi or you or me or the church in general to, to bring about some significant things in this world. And so Ruth, she's this extremely loyal. She kind of hitches her wagon to Naomi and, and she says that she's determined to go with her. And so Ruth says... Alright, I see that you're determined in verse 18 to go with me. And so she says no more. And so they leave Moab and they go back to Israel. And the reactions when they get there are pretty interesting. If you look at verse 19. 
So the two of them, they went on until they came to Bethlehem. The house of bread that wasn't producing bread is now all of a sudden the house of bread that's producing bread again. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Now, if you, I'm, it is fairly big to me. I'm from a small town, 2,500 or so people. News spreads quickly in small towns. Like you can hear whispers going out through all these little ears. And all of a sudden like, oh, so-and-so's happened. Oh, that, this happened. Oh, pretty soon the whole town knows it. It doesn't take long at all. And you can just imagine the scene in Bethlehem as this news spreads. And the town starts to be a certain Naomi's back. Naomi's back. Now, perhaps they, they can't believe that Naomi's back at all. Perhaps they can't recognize, like, man, you look different, or you've aged well or, or poorly, or, or, or man, I, I just don't know what's going on. How did you come back? Or perhaps they're kind of amazed and sure that she hasn't come back with a husband. And she doesn't come back with sons. Like, this is Naomi. We, we recognize that, but there's somebody else with you. We don't know that. Then, no, where's your husband? Where, where are your sons? And so Naomi's reaction is probably even more interesting than the towns, because she says to them, I mean, she's very blunt and out there. Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Now, she's, she's out there with things, right? Here's an introduction. Hey, I'm Naomi. I'm back. Well, don't call me Naomi. Call me bitter. Naomi likely means pleasant. She does not seem to be very pleasant right now. Don't don't call me pleasant. Don't call me lovely. Call me Naomi. Now think about this through Naomi's eyes. Here she is, and and, and she returns to this place that she's known. And and she she sees places that she went to with her husband. She's returning to places that she's walked with her sons. Where she sees, maybe even, this was where they were born. This is where we got married. These were our friends that were here with us. She sees these places and these people that she saw with her husband and her sons. But now she sees it without a husband. And now she sees it without any sons. And so you might be able to understand a little bit more that in light of this, she says to these people, don't call me lovely or present. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. Why, Why the change? Why did she go from, from Naomi to Mara? Why is she so bitter? Well, once again, Naomi has not left us in the dark about this. She's very blunt with why she says that she is bitter. In verse 13, she says, The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. In verse 20, she says, The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord brought me back empty. In verse 21, she says, The Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. She's not hiding why she thinks that she's bitter. Naomi thinks of her life and she has no thoughts of pleasantness or loveliness. She only has thoughts of bitterness. Call me Mara. Don't call me Naomi anymore. And here's the thing. Theologically, she's not wrong. She's not off. God is sovereign. God is the one who is in charge of all things. And you notice here, there's no comment from the author. There's no God trying to get in the picture and say, Wait a second, I'm not the cause of all this. None of that at all. God's not trying to be let off the hook here. He's not trying to break in and say, Wait a second, don't blame this on me, Naomi. Let's think about your life. You don't see that. God's not trying to get off the hook. Naomi's given some thought to this, maybe ten years of thought to this, and she just pours this out, and the author doesn't comment. Maybe you've been there, right? You've suffered with Naomi. 
And you thought, the Lord has done this against me. I'm in darkness and I felt this hard hand of providence and I feel bitter or you may have felt bitter in your life. When we moved to Kentucky, we moved with no job, no prospects for a job, and really no connections. Catherine had just graduated from nursing school. We thought, oh, high demand for nursing. We will be fine. I feel like I'm doing what the Lord has called me to. We're good. God is sovereign. He's in control of all these things. But we get there and we have no job, no prospects, no phone calls. Not just weeks. We're talking, we're, we're going week to week. Nothing. Months now. We're months into this thing, burning through savings with no prospects. And we caught, caught ourselves thinking every now and then, God, you, what's happening here? Like, aren't, aren't you sovereign? Aren't you in control of these things where you can send in a resume through the internet and that someone will pick it up on the other side and say, like, this is the person we need to fill this job. Are you you sorry? Why is this happening? And and the reality is, is that God can handle those thoughts. And I think that the author's lack of commenting on what Naomi is saying is, is him saying, like, you can bring these things to me. You can bring that bitterness to me. You can bring all those questions, all those doubts you've had about your suffering and this hard hand of providence. You can bring this bitterness that you've had in the midst of darkness and not hearing anything from me. You can bring your fears. You can bring them to God because He can handle them. He is the only one who can handle them. So what is God doing in these kind of circumstances? What's He working out? And the answer is, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know the answers. We don't have it all worked out. But what God wants is He wants us to trust. So we don't have the answers, but God wants our trust. So I remember one day sitting in our apartment as we're burning through savings with no job prospects. Catherine's sleeping because what else are you going to do? Right? We'll get up when we get up. There's no job to go to right now. A hard time in our lives. And I remember reading a psalm one day. Which, by the way, if you're in the midst of suffering, is a great book of prayer. And if you're not in suffering, is a great book of prayer. Make the Psalms your prayer book. And I remember that in the midst of that, I don't even remember what Psalm, and a lot of times this is what's going to happen to you as well, but I remember God, God moving me, showing me, you can trust me. We had no prospects, no idea what was going to happen, but I felt like God was working in my heart to help me trust Him. And, and I can look back now and say, that was part of what God was doing. I, I don't know all the rest, but I know that was part of it. That the, what God was doing in that situation was He was working in our lives to help us to trust Him, to lean on Him even more. This is part of what God is always doing in our lives, working on us to lean into Him and to trust Him with all of our lives, even in and especially when we don't know what's happening. And this seems to be where Naomi is lacking. In lack of trust, they leave Bethlehem and go to Moab. In lack of trust, they intermarry. In desperation, they return to Bethlehem. But even in this provision of food, Naomi remains bitter. Now maybe she had this flickering faith the whole time. Maybe she had this great faith the whole time. Maybe she didn't have any. What we do know is that Naomi is not seeing the entire picture here. She doesn't have it all. And so the author, he's, once again, he's, he's pulling back the curtains for us. He's opening up the hood to the car and letting us look in like, here's what's going on here. Because we have verse 22. It says, so Naomi, and this is the author's comment. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite 
her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. During this whole scene in Bethlehem, Naomi's return, you see the people respond to her and her respond to the people. Is someone left out? Ruth is completely ignored. Like she's not even there. She's completely left out. And Naomi says, I've come back empty. But how does Naomi come back empty? Can we look at her situation and think, yep, you're empty. Naomi thinks so. But there's someone with her that the author and that we must not forget. And her name is Ruth. Maybe Naomi's bitterness has blinded her from seeing all of the reality that God has brought into her life. Maybe her bitterness has blinded her from this extreme loyalty that Ruth has shown. This extraordinary loyalty and love and faithfulness that Ruth has shown to her mother-in-law. But not only that, but look at what time. Not only do we have Ruth, but look at what time they return. It's the beginning of the barley harvest. Hmm. It just happens that these people that have ran from famine and come back because God visited people happen to come back at the time of the barley harvest. And the author is, is cluing us in as readers to the providence of God at work in Naomi's life. She may not see all these things and this inbreaking of God's grace, but something is going on here because behind a frowning providence, he's hiding a smiling face. In Kentucky, when we weren't looking for a job at all, in the middle of burning through our savings, we decided not to go look for a job, but to go to a park. We went with some friends that we just kind of started to meet because we had no friends. So like, yes, we want friends. Let's do that. Someone invited us to the park. And we go to the park and we're meeting several new people we'd never met before. And it just so happened that as we were getting ready to leave and as the, kind of the party was getting ready to break up, another couple that just so happened to come at the same time and just uh, random connections decided to show up to this random party. And it just so happened that we ended up going up and talking to this couple and introducing ourselves. And it just so happened that that, that this guy happened to be the son of of a nurse that was in charge of an entire floor. So she might have a few connections with how to get a job. So one thing leads to another. And this nurse hires my wife. And behind the hard hand of providence, we see the smiling face of God. We don't always see what God is doing. We didn't know that we were going to the park so that we could get a job. We didn't know we went up to introduce ourselves to this person that he was going to be what connected us to something that would be a huge blessing for us. But we don't have to. What we have to do is trust. We trust in the sovereign God. Naomi's not theologically wrong here. God did this to me. The Almighty has done this. She's not wrong with her assertions against God. He is sovereign, but she's not seeing the entire picture because she's only seeing the hard-handed side of providence. Perhaps her bitterness has blinded her from the whole picture. Because here's what she's failed to see. That God is not just sovereign. He's also gracious. He's also very loving. He's also extremely kind. He also is very merciful to His people. Think of it. Here Naomi says, I've come back empty and Ruth is right by her. 
She's missing the picture. God is mysteriously and providentially and graciously working in Naomi's life. And Ruth, who is standing right by her, is evidence of this. A display of God's graciousness to her. Here is a foreign woman who does not know all the things of, of following Yahweh. Is standing right by her, showing her extreme kindness and extreme loyalty. And that's a kindness and a grace that Naomi did not deserve and she seems to neglect. She's missing the picture. And the truth for all of us is that Ruth might be standing right beside us and we still might miss it. And the real problem isn't that we'll miss Ruth and God's hand of providence beside us. The real problem is that we don't trust Him when we can't see exactly what He's doing. Our problem isn't that we notice all the providential hand of God and all that He's doing in our lives. Our problem is that we don't trust Him when we can't see those things. And this is where Naomi is. See, the truth is, we don't, we don't have to know that all that God is up to. And we don't need to. We don't need to know all of His providential hand and what it's all bringing about. We don't need to know His mysterious providence. But we do need to know Him. And we've, we've heard this idea that you don't have a God who's just a smorgasbord God that you can pick and choose the parts that you like and don't like. So... For instance, most of the time this is used in reference to God's love. You can't just have God's love and not also have His justice and holiness and, and sovereignty and wrath. But the same works in reverse for suffering saints, does it not? So we trust in the sovereign God. You're over all things. You can do whatever you want. You're the sovereign God. But we can't just say you are sovereign and then forget, pick and choose. Like, oh, you're sovereign, you've done this to me. And not pull in with that His graciousness and His love. Because He's not just strong and powerful and mighty and holy and just. He's also gracious and loving and merciful beyond description. And so we can't just have one and not the other. We can't pick and choose who God is. He is who He is. And so who is He? Who is God? Good thing this God, whose name is Yahweh, defined Himself for us. If you look in the book of Exodus, chapter 34. The song that we sing where we say, Yahweh, Yahweh, what are we talking about? Exodus 34, verse 7. God is describing Himself. The Lord is passing by before Moses. And He proclaims, starting in verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of His fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What God is doing here before Moses, and as it translates down to us and to the people of Israel, is He's saying, the Lord, the Lord. Just put a semicolon there and say, God is defining Himself. He's giving us a definition. Here's who God is. And how does He describe Himself? He doesn't just use one term. He is a God merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is the Lord. He is not just picking, choosing what we want Him to be. This is God. He is a God who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's gracious and abundantly merciful. This is God. And He hasn't changed from the time He met Moses in that place, in the cleft of the rock, to where we are now with Naomi and Ruth. He hasn't all of a sudden just been this hard providential God who says there's famine because you deserved it, and here you are empty because you deserved it. He's also gracious and merciful. Amen. He's the Lord of all. 
merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And Naomi has missed it. And God is letting us into the into this story and opening up the window that we might see. God is all these things all at once, even in the darkness of Naomi's life. Here Ruth is. Here's the barley harvest that is going on. These aren't just random acts that happen to be going on at that time. God is working. And so how did you get here? You, you drove a car. But there are a lot of other details in the midst of that. God was providentially at work, and I think for good reason, for good purpose, because God doesn't waste a thing. Think about my story of getting here to sojourn. I was somewhere else. And I was with the team going somewhere else. Jay wants to meet with me. I get sick. I can't meet with him. I was going to meet with him just because I like Jay. And I get sick and I physically cannot go meet with Jay and talk about Sojourn. So I don't. And we are not in Oklahoma very often. So we go back to Kentucky saying like, oh, sorry, get you next time. May, later in the summer. We don't know when we're coming back. And it just so happens that two of our friends, both of them from Fairview, are getting married to each other that we are both in the wedding. So we both came back. And it just so happens that Jay had a few hours to spare that morning. And we started talking about what it would look like to be at Sojourn. It just so happened that God worked in the health of one of the other guys that we were going to go somewhere else with to show us that we, we shouldn't go somewhere else. And it just so happened that John started calling me on the phone and we talked hours and hours like, like girls. I mean, we, we talked a lot. And it was all very good. And it just so happens that God guided our path here. The improbability of that is beyond description. John happens to have a job where he has to drive long hours at that time of the year when I happen to be needing a job and looking for where I should go next. I happen to get sick, but I happen to come back. I mean, we could go on and on and on. The improbability here is is unfathomable, but what we see is grace upon grace. And I don't know if you think of it as grace, but I sure do, so I'm going to add that in there. But put your story in there. Add your story to that. That's That's just one instance. Look at your story. Look back in faith. And look forward in faith. God is good. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's got this. We can look forward. We can look back in faith and see the gracious, providential hand of God. As William Cooper said, blind unbelief sure to err and scan his work in vain. But God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. Let's keep looking and trusting our interpreter. Father, you are so good to us beyond description. There is no mistake that we are here and now. We are a scientific and numerical improbability in this moment right here together. And yet we know that you are the God behind it all. And we want to tell you how great you are. We want to sing out... You are merciful. And that that ought to be the theme of our song and our lives. God, help us in the midst of our bitterness, in our darkness, in our suffering, in our pain. Please help us to trust. We don't see the entire picture. We're never meant to. We're meant to trust. We're made to be dependent beings, dependent upon You. The only one who can sustain us and help us and help us persevere. God, help us to be a people who do that, who look to You over and over and over again, who have no explanations, but keep clinging to You, our Father. Father, thank You for Your mercy and Your grace. Thanks 
that that is your character, that we can count on that from now to the eternity future. Be glorified. Amen.